word to the wise we are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us that this week that would be through chapter seven in the well of ascension by brandon sanderson the second book in the mistborn series Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. You should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club. Al Crossland, I have a bit of a bone to pick with you. What's the bone? You and I now have equal microphones. It's true. And I no longer get to feel superior on any aspect of this show. Except for in stature, my friend. <laughs> well, that's because I'm standing and you're not. Well, I think it's just in general because you're 6'7 and I'm 5'11. Irrelevant. <laughs> Strike it from the record. <laughs> Objection. Objection. <laughs> okay. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers like We tackle... What the fuck am I doing? Anyway, today <laughs> is our first episode discussing The Well of Ascension by Brandon Sanderson. Oh my god. And we are going to chat about chapters one through seven. I can't believe I did that. That's good. No, it's It's so good. It's so good. Yep. Whoops. Yeah. Nothing like having the script in front of you and still fucking it up somehow. But before (laughs) we start talking about the chapters, let's talk about what we're drinking. PJ, what did you make this lovely afternoon? So I got a new cocktail book and I didn't have most of the ingredients for it, but I did buy some ingredients and I used one of those to make this drink. I bought the the Cult of Tiki, or, or what, what's it called? Smuggler's Cove mm-hmm. is the cocktail book, all about tiki. And I bought a two-pack like ingredient thing of orange blossom water, which you use to make orgeau, which is really, really prevalent in tiki, and then rose water. So I cracked open the rose water and made a elderflower rose gimlet using the last of the end of days gin that you bought me. So two ounces of gin. An ounce and a half of St. Germain, which is an elderflower liqueur, an ounce and a half of lime juice, and half a half an ounce of simple syrup, and half a teaspoon of rose water. All shaken. Called for a garnish of rose petals. I don't know. It's just after Valentine's Day, but I'm a bad boyfriend and I didn't get any roses, so I didn't have any rose petals to garnish. Um, <laughs> so just garnishless. Served over ice because Crossland was running late, so I had to keep it chilled somehow. And it's really, really tasty. Sweet, floral, ginny, elderflowery. Like I don't, I don't know what else you want. It's really good though. Nice. Sounds tasty. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty good. Fortunately, you're out of the gin now, but I am. I need you to send me more. Following that up, I don't know if it's a seasonal release or no. It's a constant release. Okay. Awesome. I need to come visit you in reality. See what really needs to happen. Following that up, I've got Hop Surd, a double dry hopped New England IPA from Hubbard's Cave, which is out of Uni Annie Brewery in Niles, Illinois. I'm not familiar with them at all, but beer's good. It's a pretty standard New England, nothing super crazy special Mm. about it, but it's really well done. So happy to have it. Nice. Yeah. What about you, Crossland? What are you drinking? 
I am having Rashek's Deepest Regrets, which is a cocktail that I am co-opting the name from from someone else's, you know, fucking book. And I'll get to why in a second. But what Rashek's Deepest Regrets is, is it's a pomegranate uh, martini that I have twisted a little bit. Per, per the aforementioned uh, snobbery, I decided to make it my own. So I was looking up a pomegranate martini, and I found a good recipe. And I was like, oh, okay, that's that's an interesting recipe. And then it, it got really snobby about the type of pom- pomegranate juice that you used. And it delineated between purchased pomegranate juice and hand-squeezed pomegranate juice. Is that because sometimes they'll add sugar to, like, bottled pomegranate juice? Like, that's no. the only... that Fuck them. First of all, yeah, <laughs> that's really fucking dumb. And Delineating it as purchased is fucking odd. Yeah, I have tried to squeeze pomegranates before because I needed pomegranate juice for something and didn't have juice, but I had a pomegranate, so I tried. It's super dumb. It doesn't work that well if you don't have like I don't I don't know what you would use to juice them uh, to juice them, but I just used a juicer. And I got all this like really bitter, acrid flavor out of like the pith, even though mm-hmm. I tried to remove as much of it as possible. I think even the seeds, it was really frustratingly complicated and ultimately not that good. So, yeah, yeah. The the method that I've seen when I when I like went and looked it up because I was like, OK, this is ridiculous. Basically, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to take just the seeds, throw it into like a mason jar and then just use like a wooden dowel and just spin it around until you mash as much of the juice out as you can. Keep doing that, and you can do a whole pomegranate, and you'll get half a cup of fucking juice. So, sounds like a great use of my time. So, instead what I did is I bought palm like any reasonable person does, which doesn't have sugar added or anything like that. It's just pomegranate juice, so fuck off with your bullshit. So anyway, the, the cocktail again is two ounces of vodka, two ounces of purchased pomegranate juice, one ounce triple sec, of which they were recommended Cointreau I use dry curacao which is a different flavor profile a little bit herbier a little bit more herbaceous than Cointreau's Cointreau tends to be a little bit more banana-y banana orange both are orangey but I find dry curacao to be a little bit more herbaceous and then one ounce lemon juice one ounce simple syrup this is a double of the recipe so you can have that if you want to you know try it at home but I doubled it because our show goes for a while and you know I wanted something to sip on for the whole time so Rashik's deepest regrets. I took a nice photo of it too, garnished with a lemon. Looked pretty good. To follow that up, I've got a tamarind double from Flytrap. So I think I had this once before, but it's it is a Belgian Belgian style ale, seven percent. And I think I've mentioned before, but Flytrap's one of my favorite breweries in town because they do Belgians and they do them well. And so whenever yeah. I can, I generally grab one for home. And so we went there for my birthday, which was on Tuesday. And we won trivia, and I bought one and brought one home. Happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Not like we haven't talked since then, but you literally called me on my birthday. That's true. I forgot to explain what this tastes like. It's nice and sweet. It's a little tart. And like I said, using that dry curacao really gets that orange through. It's so interesting and complex because you've got like the pomegranate, which is its own kind of like tartiness. And then from the curacao, you've got this orange and kind of like just this tiniest hint of herbs like rosemary, like just a little bit in the background of the of the cocktail. Just a little bit of that herbaceousness. And obviously the lemon contributes to the tart flavor, but it's delicious. So I want to address the pomegranate thing again. I can see the rationale if you equate it to like lime and lemon juice. How like fresh squeezed is always going to be better than bottled, even if it's like organic and like no nothing mm-hmm. added. 
not from concentrate, all that stuff. But every single bartender that I've talked to or seen YouTube videos on or like read about or anything like that, talk about pomegranate juice and how like it doesn't seem like there's any delineation as far as I can tell. It's tart enough, but not like it's, it doesn't seem like a volatile juice in the same way that lime and lemon, like citrus juices are. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I think we've mentioned it on the show before, too, but the reason that bartenders have so much experience with pomegranate juice is because grenadine is pomegranate syrup, basically. It's a pomegranate yeah. simple syrup. So with orange blossom water, it's like the biggest delineation that, you know, helps you make grenadine. We are and saying delineate a lot today. Yeah, I don't know. My brain's just on it. <laughs> people have a lot of experience with pomegranate juice, and uh, people are just like, buy palm at this point. Palm is such a wide and pervasive brand. A lot of people think that grenadine is cherry, but it's actually... Yeah, pomegranate. So like bartenders have to work with the shit all the time. I think mm-hmm. the only thing that I might consider doing that I haven't thought of that I didn't think of before is getting like pre pre plucked seeds. So like seeds that are already removed from the carcass of the pomegranate and then trying to just add sugar so that it emaciates it and then just have a syrup from that. And maybe that'll be yeah. it wouldn't quite be grenadine, but it might be close enough to kind of like an extract. Um, I wonder if that that film the uh the membrane on each of the seeds mm-hmm. is fragile enough to be emaciated by sugar i bet it is if not just give it a quick a quick mashy boy and it'll it'll give it up yeah you know just like they're saying use a wooden dowel and stir it for 30 minutes and blah 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 it's just fuck you anyway <laughs> all right let's get into the episode so if you guys remember our last episode Mistborn 10 we moved last week's predictions to the end of the episode and i think we're gonna do that going forward i actually really like that i think it made yeah. a lot of sense because we could clearly answer the questions at the end and we can flag predictions as we go add them really easily with the system that we have now so we're going to do that from now on i think it's Mm -hmm. kind of a permanent fixture yeah i think it made sense with that let's move into our breakdown here we start off with obviously this is part one of a brand new book starting the second book here well of ascension and the first part is called air of the survivor any any thoughts i mean i mean it's pretty clear even even beforehand i figured they were talking about vin like when i first saw that term i don't know i think that's interesting because i think it i think it's vin but i also think it's ellen i think that they're all heirs of the survivor and i think that's kind of what it's pointing you to is like all of these people variously have to deal with the shit that kelsier left yeah i can i can see that basically everybody that we deal with says being mm-hmm. yeah yeah okay okay i'm fair i'm i'm I agree with you. The the people from the Church of the Survivor point of in being the heir, you know, as it stands, yeah. but not not holistically the same. But right, yeah. So with that, let's move into chapter one. Here uh, we've got our very first quote from who we eventually learn to be named Quan, who found Alendi. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But the very first quote to start off the book here is: "I write these words in steel, for anything not set in metal cannot be trusted." And what a fucking opener. Like that is a crazy good opening line. Yeah. We do get a callback to it later on, but right away, my first thought was like, I can't wait to continue to be like frustrated and like unsure about these entries and like who's writing them. We figure out pretty quickly who it is like explicitly by name in the entries themselves. But Mm -hmm. 
Were you concerned that we weren't going to figure out who it was? That it was going to be like another mystery? Yep. I wasn't sure if it was like just other entries from the same book Mm. or if it was something entirely different. And I was kind of looking forward to that speculation, but. Well, now it's like, why is this important? Which is interesting Mm -hmm. in a different way, right? Right. I I intentionally picked the chapters so that we would read past the point of that discovery and like leave other questions lingering because while while a good question, it's answered pretty early and pretty definitively, you know? Right. For sure. And it it leaves other questions in our mind. So even out of context and removed from this story, I really like this quote. Yeah, it's a it's a cool quote. I don't know. You know what? It, I, I definitely want to talk about this as we go, but you can tell between books that Brandon got better at writing. Like this book is incredible <laughs> comparatively. Like, yeah, I love Mistborn. I love it for exactly what it is. But there's just a little bit more flourish. And in particular, I know that I just called the I write these words in steel to be like the first line. But the real first line of the regular story, the army crept like a dark stain across the horizon. That's pretty fucking good and evocative like that's an evocative without being overly descriptive phrase mm-hmm. yeah there's a lot of that in this mm-hmm. section yeah 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 so i i just like w- listening to it because i i was listening to it while i was working out and then i read it again i was just like holy shit this is so good i'm also reading a right now which is his first book and so it's interesting to have gone from second book to first book to third book now and kind of be reading them in this order published you know that's the order that he published them and technically it's sixth seventh and eighth book but that he'd written so yeah mm-hmm. it's just hmm, so good yeah much better and it's it's like one of those things that you don't know you're missing until it improves you know it's like oh yeah that was that was good and now it's like oh this is better <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't kind of think thing. i ever had a thought of this is poorly written throughout miss yeah like, right it always seemed good but mm-hmm. this is a step ahead yeah yeah it's just elevated a little bit we open up our story of course as i had mentioned with ellen ventures perspective a year at king ellen ventures perspective i should say a year after the decisive battle that ended the lord ruler's reign he's standing on his parapet looking out as the army of his father straff venture marches on luthadel and like i said that first that dark stain moving across the horizon is such a good visual what do you think about like our, our scene setting with this first chapter in this kickoff point first of all how dare you not call him king straff venture as he refers to himself i'm sorry my liege (laughs) i'll do better next time don't Mm. behead me please no ellen wouldn't behead anyone let's be real i straff straff sorry oh straff straff is not the king king straff venture is what he calls himself in his correspondence yeah it's true it's true (laughs) because he's king of the eastern dominance which is where uritau is i always forget these i don't know especially if you look at the map i think i commented on that before northern dominance northern dominance i think we even talked about this earlier i wasn't sure if i could Mm -hmm. look at the map so i haven't i highly recommend it because i think if you look at the map there are five dominances and they're not exactly split properly in the angular directions that we're used to with north being north it was kind of like north was like northeast (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know is it's an interesting split because like south eastern is like really southern and it just seems silly it's just like slightly off gotcha i think this sort of one year time jump works really well it gives us the sense of being a little bit established but still a fresh government like still facing growing pains still facing political strife and like 
unrest between houses that are still kind of shaking out and like who's leading what mm-hmm. and without having to be like brand new how are we structuring this government we still get a fledgling government that we're seeing in person i guess i don't know hmm i don't know what what do you think of it your first time reading it the the time jump because it's not it's not significant it's not like crazy but it's a year no, I mean, it's it's scene dressing for the most part because, like, the immediate fallout, you know, I, I think about other comparisons of other stories that I've read, and I think, like, a year time jump between books is super reasonable. I think that yeah. that's enough time to, like, have things kind of develop to an interesting point as opposed to needing to, like, literally dictate every single change the characters experience day to day to day to day that can just draw out a series to almost a ridiculous point. Like, if we picked up right after The Lord Ruler without any kind of a break, you know, that feels a little bit less natural than it probably would be. That book is probably really boring. That's why we didn't start there, you know? Yeah. I think there could be really interesting points in it, though. Yeah, there could be interesting points, but I think that, by and large... Yeah, I think... I I agree with you. Don't get me wrong. I I 100% agree with you. I think this was the right move. But I think you could could have also jumped too far. Yeah. And we get kind of the best of both worlds in seeing this government not quite entirely established but established enough that it's not boring yeah yeah that it's it's got a decent foundation and it's set up well so yeah so we then cut of course from ellen to vin and get a quick reintroduction to alamancy just to make sure we hadn't forgotten the rules as well as some discussions of kelsier's formal training and kind of the the sort of difference there. And Vin using her elementary for her entire life up until this point. She mentions that she's been sparring with someone that she refers to as the Watcher as well. There's some interesting little tidbits here. What do, what do you think? First of all, is that a drink for me? So I'm I, not going to call it a drink yet. And okay. here's why. I thought about this when you had written it. And the reason why is because while we have basically proved you wrong, we do not actually know the answer of when Vin snapped yet. So... We can't reflect on it and talk about, oh, your prediction was this degree off. Like, how well, close were you? But I predicted it was something to do with Reen and Reen leaving. Yeah, yep. and I understand. Your prediction is wrong, but we don't have the answer yet, which I think is why I would say. Okay. We generally That's have fi- the answer before we settle a prediction, not the counter answer. Yeah. Unless I know that the... But yeah, we, kn- we, know, we know this is wrong, though. Or we know it can't be... There's a gamification here that is important okay. to me. So I need to I need to keep that card on the table. <laughs> okay, fine. You you may not agree with it anymore, which is fun. And we can maybe no. update it and, and keep yeah. it that way. We can maybe even let you double down and sink another drink into it if you want. But <laughs> that could be fun and interesting. But yeah, I want I want to keep okay. it. I don't want to take it off the table. That's yet. fine. Fine by me. Yeah. I'm almost done with my drink anyway, because we've been Jesus Christ. <laughs> I made it early. And then you pushed our recording time, and then we did the Devil's Cut thing, which, if you want to listen to the Devil's Cut, where we talk about bullshit for, like, 20 minutes before the episode, sign up for our Patreon. And, I don't know, I made it a couple hours ago at this point. Yeah. Good work. It wasn't that. Well, it was, like, an hour ago. It was a little bit over an hour ago. Hour 15. Because you were ready to go at, like, 1, and I wasn't on until one fifteen. so. Yeah, I made it before that. Yeah. Well, I was on the phone with you while you made it, so... <laughs> It's not like you didn't know that I was running behind. (laughs) I was very communicative. (laughs) I wanted to clean up before I... So, getting back to it, though, obviously, 
we also get this like reintroduction to Alamancy, right? I think it's important to clarify. We'll talk about this a little bit more in the next chapter because that's where it really gets kind of heavy with the battle and kind of introducing us to all the things that are possible or reintroducing, I should say. But I think that this is interesting because I think that this is also a symptom of publishing a book annually. If you need to publish a book with time in between, you might need to remind your readers of the system and of all the rules and everything because they're probably they've probably read other things before that they're not going back to back to back like we are you know because they were reading 2006 and then 2007 and then 2009 i think are the publishing dates but yeah between this section and the next chapter like you mentioned i really appreciate that this reintroduction to allomancy isn't necessarily spoon-fed or like condescending in its description like it's not super super simplified and like reiterated but it's also not obfuscated in any sort of way that's difficult to follow like it's a kind of a fine line that branderson's walking here and it's it's well done so yeah i appreciate it granted i jumped straight from mistborn into this like that was the last thing i read so i I think what's also clear when we get into the next chapter is that he's gotten more concise at being able to describe these things too there's a That's little true. bit more a little bit more of a deft hand with explaining how these different actions happen as well mm-hmm. which i think is useful for communicating action but going back to chapter one anyway because kind of moving ahead and back and forth we also see orsur inhabiting a new body and a different body than he last was i think the last time we saw him he was wearing kelsier's bones and of course this comes up even more within the next chapter but i wanted to bring him up here you know this is kind of our introduction to orsur for the most part as an individual as opposed to him being lord renew right did we get orsur's name in the first book orsur's name was definitely dropped in the first book it was it was Okay. Something that Kelsier talked about buying his contract or Sewer's contract right. early on in the book. And I made a big point about bringing it up just to see. And you're like, what the fuck does that mean? Was kind of your reaction to the whole thing. You had no idea. You weren't tracking it as the Condra thing. You thought it was like a weapon thing and something like that. It turns out it kind of was. It was a political weapon. If you really want to think about it that way. But yeah, I'm interested in the naming conventions of the Condra because the two that we have now are Orsur and Tensoon, right? Mm-hmm. Were there yep. any others? I think it was just those two. Nope. That's it so far. And both of them, two names, concatenated and camel cased. So I don't know if that's significant or if there's anything more to it than that, or if it's just kind of cultural and that's how they name themselves. I, Or if somebody names them. I don't know. It's interesting. So. Yeah. yeah it, like you said, it's an interesting naming convention for sure. And it should be a telltale sign of those names maybe going forward too. If you'd notice something concatenated like that and yep, perhaps, but if you're listening, you're fucked for the record. I think one of our patrons and I discussed this, that if you are strictly a listener, you are totally like have no idea on the side of the, the Condra naming convention. And so mm-hmm. you're kind of left out of this information bubble that exists when you read and listen or, you know, reference material, whatever you do. Yeah. Yeah. Interested in seeing where the naming convention goes if there's more to it yeah i definitely agree with you and i kind of want to chat a little bit from like a meta perspective just to end up this end this first chapter first chapter is our first impressions of a book right and we've you've read enough of them where you can kind of get some semblance of an idea at this point and by that i mean like you've read enough within the spectrum of our podcast i know you've read books before but with kind of the analysis that we're doing you know Given what we know from this first six pages, what do you leave? What does it leave you thinking we're going to see within this first book? 
I mean, given what we've seen so far, it seems like this is going to be less of a a heist movie kind mm-hmm. of theme and more of a political focused fantasy. Okay. So a little bit of a high level army strategy, a little bit of infiltration and subterfuge, a little bit of a love story between Vin and Ellen to like, it's going to be spanning a lot of that, but I think mostly centered around the seat of power, I guess. Okay. Yeah, totally agree. I think as far as first chapters go, this gets us grounded back in the reality of Mistborn if we spend time away. It gives us a very clear picture of our POVs. And we have our primary players. We have Vin, we have Orsur, we have Elent, and we have Straff that are kind of introduced, not necessarily as POVs, and the Watcher, this mysterious Watcher. So we kind of get a lot of players within this first chapter that are clearly going to be important. It sets the tone and it does, like you say, provide this idea that this is going to be political intrigue, a little bit of love, a little bit, a little bit of everything from the last one, but no heisty boys. <laughs> yeah. So, though yeah. it does kind of leave that open still a little bit mm-hmm. in that we don't know about the ATM horde as it were yet. I've got my own ideas about that, but I think we'll get that, get to that later. Yeah. So we move on. From that, of course, into chapter two. I do have to say, before we get into chapter two real quick, I just took my first sip of Hubbard's Cave, and I don't remember this. I don't know if this is just an off can or what, but it's it's a lot more dank than a lot of New hmm. England's. Like, and Interesting. Almost, almost to the point of being like that sort of marijuana note that you get from some more resinous hop varietals. If you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Don't remember that out of this. From mm. When was the last time you had it? This is my fourth in a four pack. But Oh, okay. It's not usually the first one I drink. So there's that. It's <laughs> usually like, oh, I've had two beers. Let's grab another one. Oh, what, what's this one? So, so you're leading not, with it this time. So it's a little bit of a different. Not on my game as far as taste buds go from the first three. So Okay. Moving into chapter two. We've got our first entry in the logbook here, or rather our second one, excuse me. The We kick it off there. I've begun to wonder if I'm the only sane man left. Can the others not see? They've been waiting so long for their hero to come, the one spoken of in Terra's prophecies, that they quickly jump to conclusions, presuming that each story and legend applies to this one man. I feel like we've talked about this before in the first book, in the idea that like these prophecies aren't necessarily all connected. I think you made mention. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, this this felt like a really rational take on the idea and how everybody's kind of getting caught up in this hero of ages idea. And looking at it a little bit more critically, maybe you come to the conclusion that it doesn't have to be a single person. I think that's another really interesting point to to analyze this is as we know, that this is Quan a little bit later, like I think within the next two chapters. This is the guy who picked out the Hero of Ages, who determined that Alendi was the Hero of Ages. And so he, interestingly enough, after basically propelling and prophesying this man, is the only one who feels like he was wrong to begin with. And that's an interesting dichotomy to be like, oh shit, I made the wrong call, and now I can't undo the damage done. And we definitely see that flip from Alendi's perspective in the first book. Mm-hmm. When he he's lamenting over Quan's betrayal, 
Yeah, betrayal or even before the betrayal, just kind of the contempt that starts coming out. The contempt was Rashak. Quan, oh, it Quan was, was just right, strictly right. a betrayal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's it's hard to keep track of those two in that original logbook, which you confused one other time. And I was like, mm, no, that's not quite right. But okay. it, it did end up becoming resentment for sure on the side of Elendi towards him for the betrayal, but also understanding. He he tried to come out and understand it because he, he went from the most important – Quan went from – from Elendi's perspective, Quan went from the most important dude to the the like – second most important dude who called out him and so he thought it was jealousy potentially was the mm-hmm. reaction and why he betrayed him he was trying to rationalize kwan's betrayal yeah it is interesting though because it does have this sort of dualistic take you can compare pretty readily already <laughs> i i don't think that this is even a stretch you can compare kelsier's actions in the first book to kwan kind of and the unintended consequences of his decisions and such like you can see those unfolding Kind of in live time. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. There's there's less of the going back on the thoughts, you know? As yeah. far as, like, finding Vin and then wondering if Vin is actually who he, thought he, who he thought she was. I wasn't so much saying that. I was thinking more on the side of the unintended consequences of okay. upending the Empire, right? Gotcha. Less on less on like what actually happened with Kelsier, but the the end result of Kelsier's actions. Okay. Yeah, I can. You see prop that. up this person, you realize you did the wrong thing. You prop up this idea, you realize that it maybe it was wrong, and that's kind of, or maybe like it wasn't as easy as it was going to be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Fair enough. Cool. All right. I, I think that chapter two, though, is interesting because it gets into this kind of conversation, right? Brandon is still going through and reminding us of the rules of Alamancy, like we said, in case there were any questions through an incredible action sequence. You know, it's very much a show don't tell, which I think is a, a great way of reminding us of these rules. He also gives us a little bit of backstory inside of these moments and perspective on Vin throughout the scene and sequence and the way that she's come to adapt to her new life, protecting King Ellen Venture and being that assassin that we discussed at the end of the last book. Yeah. Yeah. She's going to be a really fucking good assassin, man. <laughs> we already see it. We already see her strengths and her weaknesses are entirely internal, but kind of lend themselves to being a person skulking in the night and like Mm -hmm. hiding so even her personal weaknesses could be twisted and like presented as strengths for the role that she's trying to to fill yeah i don't know yeah no i i agree i think that that feels very intentional on the part of brandon to say like hey even your even what you consider to be your worst qualities are still good for what you do and you've twisted them into something that is it's you Right. So Vin, of course, proceeds through this action sequence to fight eight assassins, pressing through them, pressing through and cutting through them when a coin from another angle comes down and the coin shot. One of the eight people that are there is forced to react. The shot, of course, is fired by the watcher, the one who was discussed previously as sparring with Vin in the first chapter. Do you have any guesses as to who the watcher is or their <sighs> motives? Fuck, dude. Is it Kelsier? Like I'm not gonna I was so ready to just accept a character's death for once. Like, I was so <laughs> ready for it. Now I'm going back on it. I don't know that or it's Marsh. It's possible. Oh fuck! I have to pick one, don't I? Well, I mean, if we're gonna like use this as a as a prediction, I have to pick one. 
definitely a prediction, but I will I will allow for you to suspect that it could be anything, right? Like it doesn't need to be an existing character. It could no. be. I'm going um, to. It could it's be a new character. Fuck. Right. All right. PJ is pacing around his room right now <laughs> in anxiety uh, <laughs> for this because I was so ready. I was so emotionally ready to just let go of a character for once. For fucking once. Pierce Brown ruined me for that. And now I'm like turning my back on that whole embracing the death. So I don't know. Kelsier. All right. All right. As the battle progresses, we see why it is that the Watcher shot the coin at the coin shop. It's because in reality, he is a mistborn hiding among the, among the assassins. Uh, also, the Watcher kills the smoker at the same. Like he he shot earlier to try to indicate to Van, like point in the direction of like, come on, like this is clearly one of them. And then on top of that, he actually kills the smoker to stop the hiding of Alamancy so that she can pierce with bronze and actually sense that he is more than just a coin shot. Van calls out to Orser. With a code phrase for her to throw him, or for him to throw her, her ATM, she downs the vial and dispatches the first couple of assassins, taking a beating while doing so. But more importantly, that was Vin's final bead of ATM. Yeah. Interesting point. Final bead of ATM. Clearly, other Mistborn still have access to some. So that's going to be a point of problem going forward. Yeah, that's, that's trouble. That stash is still missing, which... Again, I've got ideas, but oh, well, I had something I wanted to bring up, and I can't remember exactly what it was. Oh, thinking about bodies and whether or not okay. somebody's alive or not. We know that most Alamancers can't interact with metal that's like inside of somebody. Does that only apply if they're alive? Like, could Vin just take the iron from people's blood and like throw bodies around at other people if they're not living anymore that <laughs> is or or unused metals in their stomachs specifically i don't know hmm. Hmm. i don't know maybe it'd be pretty cool interesting <laughs> like, yeah dispatch guess, a misborn and take their atm yeah huh. it's kind of gross having to swallow that but <laughs> yeah you get some weird bile on it Having to like restore it in like a tube, and you have to like push it down with your finger <laughs> into the tube because oh, no. it's no longer it's no longer just flakes. <laughs> it's like guts. <laughs> oh god! Could you imagine like swallowing someone's stomach so you could <laughs> digest their metals, <laughs> like squeezing it out? Anyway, oh, all right. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> that's like the R-rated version of Mistborn. No, but like uh, that's one thing that I never quite glass er, grasped, grasped, grasped from the first book was why having it inside of somebody stops the the effect even just being pierced into somebody's arm like it doesn't well, it doesn't make sense to me is it just because they're alive you know maybe maybe that is the rule it, it is interesting because i think vin literally says something along the lines of like she knows the rules she doesn't care <laughs> so like she's not she's not investigating the rules further it's something to that effect that comes out in these first two chapters yeah. um and i thought that was really funny that she doesn't care about the rules of like what pulling things in or out of the body or and whatnot i think it's in reference to maybe her pulling on the mists too that mm-hmm. might be a little bit later but it's i think yeah. you're right 
Yeah. Or Sora after the battle brings up something, you know, he's shot through with coins, broken, bleeding in a bunch of places, but brings up something new that Vin derides as the almighty contract because she's prevent he's prevented from like eating her bot, eating one of the bodies of the assassins and she's coming up with an alternate plan. But he brings up like he has to listen to her because of the contract. What do you make of this guide for the Chandra and for their behavior or sewers at the very least? So here are more rules that I don't understand, and I want to know. <laughs> this feels very demonic in nature. Okay. Like, uh, we're a devilish pact, and how like, that's binding to the soul to a certain extent mm-hmm. and cannot be broken. So, like, I'm I'm getting that sort of vibe, but then later on we get that sort of contradiction in that it seems like it's possible to break that pact, but he just doesn't want to, and he'd prefer to die rather than, like, break the contract. But that doesn't that doesn't seem to me that it's impossible to break it. It's just that he doesn't want to. Like maybe there are personal consequences to it. I don't know. At least right here, first time reading it, it felt like a devilish pact. Okay. It's interesting. Are you upset at Vin for not letting him take a regular body? No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious. We'll get to we'll get to the body that he gets later, but I, I wanted to know. No, right. I found it hilarious. Yes, awesome. With that, we move into chapter three. Chapter three. So we start off here with the logbook, of course. My brethren ignore the rest of the facts. They cannot connect to the other strange things that are happening. They're deaf to my objections and blind to my discoveries. <sighs> you can just feel the resentment kind of pouring yeah, out. Of that. You can you can just hear the contempt. Yep. The way that it's written. It's it's not like single or like two word sentences, but it still feels very staccato in the way that it's written mm-hmm. and just direct and intentional and and contempt. I don't know. He's also carving this into metal. Like that's another yeah, thing to consider. That's a here. good point. Yeah. There's a lot of Either that might take a lot of effort or alternatively, it's like just a fucking nightmare and he doesn't, he only has so much space. Maybe who knows? Yeah, that's a good point. We don't know that yet. Yeah. Yeah. Being ignored by your peers sucks. Anyway, moving on. Well, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. I mean, what do you do? Anyway, Ellen is dealing with something familiar here. Late night work to keep the gears turning. He's confronted with a very real problem after rebellion. How the hell do you put it all together and make it work properly like you wanted it to in the first place? He's he's dealing with that transition from his books, his metaphors, his philosophy into making that as real as it possibly can be in modern society. Yeah. And I mean, here here's the the true delineation between the the thinkers and the doers, you know, mm-hmm. like you can think about the ideal way something's going to go forever, but doing is so much less predictable and you have to act on the fly and things are going to come up that you didn't pre- like predict. Like we, we get this later on, but the populace in general, they're used to, they're used to the Lord ruler and don't even have a way of understanding that something new is going to be better than what they dealt with like they had a place to sleep they had food like they were regularly abused and beaten but at least they didn't have to fend for themselves for the most part as far as like Mm -hmm. shelter and food go yeah right it is such a compelling uh reason for vin or for ellen to seek action and seek change right and it is frustrating because 
people don't understand the opportunity that they're presented with. The SCA don't understand the opportunity that they have because of a lack of education, because of a number of different reasons, because of cultural oppression, because of all kinds of things. And that's kind of that's a tough pill to swallow, I think, for any and all of the characters. And on top of that, Ellen has to deal with the the previous ruling class and the obligators and everyone else that previously existed, which is in and of itself difficult. So he has to he has to tamper expectations of the nobleman, and he also has to try to uplift the ska and give representation. And it's a difficult difficult juggling act. It's a lot to it's a lot to take care of all by one person. Good yeah, thing he's not yeah. alone. He's got a yeah, he's not got entirely friends. Alone. He's got some friends. He's got some friends now. We we hop back to Vin for a little bit more, reflecting on the events of the past book and subsequent year, mostly thinking about the Lord Ruler's defeat and how the legends have sprung up around her now, as opposed to Kelsier to some degree, making her out to be this legendary hero. Except for, well, like, she kind of actually is. Like, she kind of she kind of actually did this. She absolutely is. Mm-hmm. But I don't think she's the kind of person that would ever admit to being a hero regardless of how much personal growth we see her go through. Like she's a humble person. And Mm -hmm. a lot of that, unfortunately is born out of abuse and abandonment. But at the same time, like, you know, she's not going to have a, like a hero complex going forward. She's not going to have a, she's not going to have an ego. That's going to ruin everything, you know? Right. I, agree i think that that is one of the that is one of the most interesting things about vin is there i mean if we're talking about archetypes right like characters are often hand handed responsibility and a lot of them are are sort of the humble leaders right like luke skywalker is a little arrogant becomes humbled you know kind of moves forward that way vin was humbled to begin with and vin does not elevate herself to even the level or rank of hero and does not believe that she is she's just a mistborn who got lucky you know yeah and the sort of the legends and the stories are are not of her own. You know, she doesn't claim them as hers in any degree. That's a good point and something I hadn't really put a whole lot of thought into. And I think you've mentioned it towards the end of one of the last episodes of the previous book. But the fact that she referred to her powers as luck, like she is she is so lacking in luck in the beginning of the first book that like she quantifies it. And like puts puts it into into a physical sense. Yeah. And like I don't any think of the she pushes. Ever, yeah. 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 That's that's interesting. It's like a manifestation. Like her her ability to influence things she considers luck, not her actually exerting influence. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That is interesting. I hadn't fully I hadn't fully connected that dot until you said it, which is why I jumped in. Yeah. Hmm. hmm. Excellent. Yes. Yes. On top of that, we also get a reflection. Uh, Vin on Kelsier and how imperfect he was. The survivor of Hatson was a good man responsible for the plan to topple the final empire, but he was flawed. He had blind spots, perhaps the biggest blind spot being his rage for noblemen and not realizing how hard it was going to be to pick up the pieces after he broke the empire. You know, this is this is kind of a tough point for Vin to reckon with and, and kind of sit with. What did you think about it? I mean, it's certainly short sighted to have such a grudge against the noblemen. But I think that's a trade-off that kind of has to be there. It's kind of necessary in that he was a man of passion and all of his actions were actions of passion for the most part. Like, well thought out, but his motivation was passionate. And when you feel so strongly about something, you can't just turn that passion off while keeping it on for other aspects of the plan. Mm -hmm. You know? 
like in order to have as much conviction as he did, he had to go all out on it. And unfortunately that meant collateral damage in the way of the people that could potentially lead after the toppling of the Lord ruler. And uh, yeah, to that point, I guess he did, he did do some, he had some foresight, right? Like he, he did have enough foresight to try to move people into the right place, but not nearly as much as he needed to have, you know, he was still very short-sighted. That was, that was something he kept going back and forth on too. And I don't know if that was just uh, oversight in the editing process, but it felt like sometimes he was so ruthless with any, even any ska that were sympathetic to or work for any noble people. And sometimes he like forgave any ska people that work for the nobles because they were trying to do their best and trying to survive. And like they came and joined the rebellion. Like there was not a ton of consistency there. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out if there's a thread that I'm missing or if there's logic that I'm missing in, in his like rationale. Do you know? I think I can point to a couple of examples and I, I kind of know what you're talking about. So if you look at like the very beginning prologue, right? Like he's not, he's not killing the people that are on Tressing's farm. He liberates them and saves them. Right. Right. They're workers, though. I think the biggest difference is that when Ska are warriors and they are actively trying to fight him, even if they're protecting, he would kill them. That's the biggest delineation. I think that's where he is consistent, is if they were Ska fighting, he would kill them. But he accepts some of them into the rebellion army. Eventually. Yes. Yeah. But even after, like, he accepts them, and then after that goes and, like, Murders a bunch of Scott people that are guarding a noble house and doesn't feel any remorse for it and, like, argues with Marsh about it. Well, yeah, yeah, because when he when he breaks in to go steal the shit, right, like, he he ultimately does kill a bunch of Ska. And I think later when he when he destroys most of the Tekiel house, he kills a bunch of Ska. So I think that those are warriors that weren't going to join the cause, though, and they were in the way at the moment. So it's like a moment to moment thing. I would argue, though, that I think his morals changed after the conversation with Marsh and then into the conversations with Vin. So there's okay. there's that component there. I think he was being consistent with the you're in my way. Now okay. you get to get out of my as like head squelched on the pavement and we're thrown out of windows and fucking, you know, yeah. he was ruthless with with Ska. So this is why rereading is so important. And I am excited to have time to do that or or a sounding board sometimes, you know? Yeah, that's so. true. But I mean, just to just to go back and look at early chapters with the context mm-hmm. and like look for the specific follow up points. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. I think that Kelsier is an interesting and very complicated character. Obviously, we are living in the legacy of Kelsier right now, and I don't think that's going to change, <laughs> you know, so. Vin then has a very strange interaction while burning bronze, listening to the thrumming of metal, sounding like a distant drum until she actually does notice someone burning metals. She She's able to pierce through a cloud and there's an image in the mist forming, becoming more solid as it in, is encircled by the mists. And when it takes a step forward, Vin freaks the fuck out, throws coins and jumps away. What do you think this could be? I forgot to make this a prediction. This is oh, a prediction. interesting. Yeah. So I think this is what the Lord ruler warned about what Rashik warned about on his like final moments in that he was seemingly actively doing something and holding something at bay. Okay. This 
in conjunction with what Marsh talks about later, that the mists are starting to come in the day time. Like now that the Lord ruler's influence is gone, there's something coming back and something, something malicious is happening. So, and I think that also sets up, I don't know if you can call it a singular villain, but the antagonist for the rest of the story, at least for this book. And probably I would imagine going forward because it seems very fucking big. I don't know. <laughs> it seems like a, a big point that feels like we'll be reiterating throughout the story. Yeah. I mean, the thing here is that this is something from the mist, right? It appears yeah. to be something from the mist. So we hop back in. So we, we obviously move from this point with the, the monster, right? That's forming in the mist or the person, the individual that takes that step forward. Finn freaks the fuck out. It's a very interesting kind of shift. And, you know, it is it is one of those things where it's like, hmm, maybe the Lord Ruler was right. <laughs> and then there's all these different perspectives. It's like, huh, maybe there was something bigger here. And, like, we didn't really take it into consideration. You know, we didn't actually listen. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Uh-oh. So we hop back to Ellen and we start with him by triumphantly finishing his homework. I mean, like, the documents of his proposal. <laughs> so, <laughs> But we get the letter from his father, which he opens up, which is, you know, in and of himself, his own antagonist that reads very much like, good boy, thanks for watching the house. Now open up the gates for me. And I fucking hate this man. I hate yeah. Straff Venture. He, of course, talks, Ellen talks a little bit more about the dangers of Straff and how dangerous he is to the central dominance, which I believe is also the first time they start to use these phrases to determine mm-hmm. geography. Yeah. This is, I think, the point that I was talking about earlier, the correspondence where he, like, signs off as King Straff Venture. Yeah. 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 I think you're That's, right. Whew, <laughs> fuck this dude. Like, what a cockroach of a person. But, I mean, he gave Ellen control of the house in Luthadel, right? Like... Yep. Willfully handed it off. It was intended intended to be a malicious act and, like, a a way of basically getting rid of his son like his fuck up son but he did it so fuck you dude like you abdicated the position yep absolutely absolutely no disagreement for me (laughs) it's just ridiculous straff is the biggest piece of shit yeah i just have such a hard time with him he sucks our boy straff yeah our boy straff (laughs) oh fuck we also finally get a look behind the curtain at Vin and Ellen's blossoming relationship. They're still flirting like they were before, but there is like a curious note here that kind of ends this or is in the back of Ellen's mind. The fact that Ellen had proposed and she declined. So he offered marriage and she decided not to. Why do you think she did that? Why the fuck didn't I make this a prediction? It is now. Okay. I think there are a couple different reasons. And I'm sure it's not single faceted. In general, but I think a couple of the points would be one self image in general, like, and the, the feeling yeah. of being unworthy, which is something that isn't true. And we know that, but it's something that Vin struggles with. And I believe will probably struggle with for the rest of the story for as long as we know Vin, I'm sure that's something that she is going to personally struggle with and we'll see progression towards feeling worthy of of love and attention and not being entirely afraid of abandonment but it's deep rooted in her going beyond that i think another point is distraction and she seems to be taking this role of royal assassin really really seriously 
Yeah. And adding a marriage to that will not be so conducive to honing those skills and, and figuring it up, figuring out that position because she's forging her own way and like what that means. So, yeah, I, all right. All right. Yeah. I, I think, I think you, uh, you hammered the nail there. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't feel like there's anything to talk about thematically. I think you, I think you did it. The depth of their relationship, I think, is really interesting too. Moving between the two stories, like it's clear that despite, like you were kind of saying, despite this feeling of unworthiness on Vin's part, it it's kind of not unnecessary. Like it's unwarranted, but it's her own self-image, and so Ellen at the same time respects that and understands. And there's kind of an interesting mutual understanding. He still is kind of has in the back of his head has like a little bit of like, okay, well. I get it, but like I wish that that weren't the case, but it's okay. And that doesn't need to be the end all be all of their relationship. He picked the oddest girl with the, I think, oddest. Oh my God, what does he say? It's something really funny like that, though. God damn it. It's so good. I can't remember the terminology. It's so funny. I mean, it's it's just, it's not that funny, but it's like, it's just funny enough, right? That's Vin freaking out. Women are difficult enough to understand, and I had to go and pick the oddest one of the lot. <laughs> it's just like, it's his own, you know, it's. It's the mm-hmm. oddest one of the lot that gets me personally. And I'm like, that's kind of, it's a funny, funny little bit. It is. Another detail here, of course, it's very important within Ellen's perspective. They weren't able to find the Lord Ruler's cash. We've talked about this a little bit earlier, and they don't believe that that ATM exists. And it seems to be what's drawing Straff to him. And eventually we learn some other powers as well beyond just the power of the central dominance because of the power that that ATM could provide to whoever owns it. Yeah. There's an interesting little power vacuum, power sink that's going on. There is. I know I talked about this in the first book, and I think I'm still on board with that idea in that the ATM being mined and used or and, and hoarded by the Lord Ruler is wasn't being hoarded at all, but was being used. And I think now, knowing a little bit more, I I think I don't know, I was trying to think it was something to do with like using a whole lot of a team at once gave some like weird elevated like time powers sure but i don't think that's the case i think it's something more to do with keeping whatever it is he was keeping at bay at bay like whatever he was actively doing to protect humanity like you mentioned and clearly something now is coming up and being a problem I think it, he was using ATM to do that. Okay. So all right. It was all used. It's all been burned is basically my guess. Bro, you're making so many good predictions here that I'm just continuing to flag question by question. Little tiny, little tiny predicty boys. We got to start off the story with something, you know? Yeah. I think it's, and it's, it's, it is conspicuous. The fact that this is missing is very conspicuous and it, it seems to be incongruous with the details that we've gotten previously about the Lord Ruler and kind of hoarding the ATM and the fact that it's missing leads you to leads you down the path logically of like, well, the Lord Ruler must have been burning it because we know he's an Alamancer. There's some sort of other purpose here that we just aren't quite aware of. So one thing I really want to know is what a ferric mist could do with ATM because mm. it is an internal metal, correct? I think so. Yeah, pretty sure. So it no, would... it's an external metal because you're projecting other people's shadows. So is gold internal? Gold is an internal metal. We know that because it projects yourself, right? So So very, very simply. Under our under with our understandings of ferricomists, they could use gold 
hypothetically. Yes. I don't know what that would mean or what they could do with it, but wait, use gold for what? What are you? Oh yeah, ferrochemists could use gold. Yes, yes, yes. Ferrochemy. We actually know the answer to that. Ferrochemy with gold is youth. It's storing age. Oh right. Yep. Yeah. We did yeah. learn. I that. just had to. I had that to confirm the, before I said it out loud. I was like, wait that a minute. That was in the oh, epilogue, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 That was in the epilogue. Yep. 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 Okay. Yep. Totally. Gotcha. Okay, never mind. Ooh. Some of these things I'm dodging bullets around, and I'm like, I just have to make sure that I don't say anything until I figure out exactly what it is and double check and look it up and remember. So there's there's some there's some there's some shit here. That's, and now you have you know, to do it without making facial expressions, which is funny. I think I'm doing fine. You're doing well. I just generally I pause and I, I stare off into the distance and I intensely read and I'm like, okay, stare up at the ceiling, internalize. What am I going to say? Say it to PJ and address. <laughs> it's my my motions at the moment. Exactly. So our our final note in this chapter, moving on from the ATM, it adds some geography into the equation. Talked a little bit about it earlier, but the assassins that came and that Vin dispatched were from the Western dominance from Fadrix, not from Urto, the hereditary homeland of the Venture family in the Eastern dominance. We also get another name, the king of the Western dominance, Ashweather Set. And what a kingly name. What a kingly name. It's a pretty cool name. Not going to lie, but yeah. So we, we get a little bit of geography. We get these maps. We get kind of some interesting shit. What what'd you make of the expanding world of Mistborn? So this was the point where I like really wanted to look at the map yeah. and couldn't remember. Like, I know we've talked about this a couple times and we talked about it at the beginning of the show. But like you had explicitly told me not to look at the map in, I think, Red Rising or Golden Sun. Because Red they were like, Rising. Yeah. Because of and the specific houses, yeah. That, for me, was always just, from now on, never look at any external source material other than the exact text of what we're reading. So, mm-hmm. I need to I need to study this map more, because now I've got it open, and you're right, it's kind of fucked. So, I read this entire book, right, the first time that I read it, last summer, and I was oblivious to the map. And I was like, I was trying to keep track of where the cities were in my head. And it was, I was completely wrong because Eastern is really like a Southern dominance and the Southern dominance is kind of like a Southwestern dominance and the Western dominance is really like a Northwestern dominance. And it's all kind of just a little bit off. Well, also the, the compass rose doesn't have North, South, East, East and West. It has their own symbols. Yeah. It's got Um, the Alamantic symbols. So, so maybe, (laughs) maybe the map is actually like this. I think you're actually right. Yeah. Right. You're right. It's fucky. The whole okay. thing's fucky. No. Yeah, but I, I think maps you can absolutely look at. You can ask me for any of the references, but I think I I think I made the statement to you in a text and I will make it for anyone at home. This book is a okay to read both the front and the Ars Arcanum in the back of the book because it does not at the very least the Alimantic table, I should say, in the Ars Arcanum. I haven't gone through and read the terms, but it's just another Alimantic table with, you know, the extra metal that we've learned from the previous book so it doesn't expand it adds questions but it doesn't you know really determine anything externally for you to anyone who's like new to listening to us through like the <laughs> mistborn true. series not through red rising i know i get a little bit intense about spoilers and stuff and one that's just kind of how i am i really enjoy i enjoy not having things to think about while going forward like when's this going to get revealed what does this mean like going for and trying to piece things together because I will. 
if I know something mm-hmm. about it, I'll like, I can't stop that from getting into my mind, but also for the show, I want to come at it as fresh as possible because like a big part of the show is making predictions and seeing if I'm right. So yeah. I know it's, I know it's a little bit intense. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also yeah. keeping it honest to the chapters and that like yeah. knowingly, knowingly intensely separated from that. Yeah. We do have an episode coming out in March or April, depending on when we officially launch the other feeds, but of speculative knowledge explaining our ridiculous, not ridiculous, but I think it's ridiculous and it's helpful for experiencing media, but our uh, team no hype explanation. So yeah. I don't think it's unique. I think it's probably no. pretty common. But we put a name to it and we kind of honor it as much as we can. The, yeah. The team no hype. You know, like around the new Spider-Man movie, which you have no idea about. With that, we move into chapter four and we open up with, of course, the logbook, as we always do. I'm calling it the logbook. It's more it's a piece of metal, apparently. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> the slab. The slab. Anyway. Here we've got the first little section. Perhaps they are right. Perhaps I am mad or jealous or simply daft. My name is Quan, philosopher, scholar, traitor. I am the one who discovered Elendi, and I am the one who first proclaimed him to be the hero of ages. I am the one who started all of this. Mm-hmm. So we've already talked about it a little bit, but like this is the declaration of who we're listening to, which is interesting versus the previous logbook, which was kind of kept a secret intentionally from us, as well as the definition of the author of the previous logbook, Elendi. Yeah. So I don't know if there's a whole lot to make of this little chunk other than the fact that now we know for sure who the author is. And Mm -hmm. I think just knowing that changes the way I approach the rest of it. Because even the first book, I was basically 100% sure that it was Lord Ruler through most of it. But -hmm. it was still, there was no confirmation. So I didn't have that to lean on as far as context goes, looking Mm -hmm. at what's being said. So this is, and even in the idea that he was the Lord Ruler, he was clearly someone different than who the Lord Ruler became in that mm-hmm. sort of thought process. So there was yeah, an so your assumption mystery. was that there was a, a transformation was your yeah. assumption then. Yeah. Yeah. So this, we know without a doubt who's writing this. So we don't have to put any sort of brain power to like who this person is other than trying to figure out what this person is all about. Like there's still that aspect of it. Yeah. There's still portions to figure out here, but it's not quite as uh strict of a discovery as the last story was yeah yeah exactly yeah and the fact that we know that it's Quan, we've heard of Quan before we've we've talked mm-hmm. about him previously in this episode even that you know he had a connection with Elendi. he ultimately betrayed him and you know he literally calls himself a traitor within this own section so there's definitely more to be revealed here which will be interesting yeah to see yeah it will be all right we jump, of course, from here to Sazed and his perspective here in the Eastern Dominance, wherein he's being investigated, or rather, wherein he's investigating a mysterious death of a man who sees seemingly from an attack from the mist during the day, which is completely against our assumptions of when the mist comes out and everything like that. But Sazed has seen this before, relatively recently. Interesting and <laughs> freaky, but 
I really appreciate that we get Seiza's perspective in this book so far. We get it a couple times in this section, and that makes me really kind of hopeful that we get it going forward. But we also know that sometimes the perspective is kind of a one and done for Branderson. The fact that there's two of them, maybe that means that it won't stop, but I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that it'll continue on because I really like this character. As far as this context goes, this this section, did, actually, before that, did we make predictions about who would be a perspective in the next book? I feel like no. we talked about that. I should have. No. Maybe we talked about it in, like off air. I think we might have talked about it in the wrap up episode a little bit, but it was not a okay. It wasn't an official. It was not a prediction. big point. Yeah. Okay. I couldn't remember. I don't remember if I said Sazed at all. <laughs> I, I could have. Okay. Cool. Well, I'll know. I could have gotten a drink out of you at that point. But with this, like actually looking at the text, the mists are going to be a problem, aren't they? Like, they're going to be a real big problem going forward. Like, oh, nothing to worry about. These stories keep the ska hap- like, happily in their home, scared of going outside, blah, blah, blah. It's fucking bullshit. There's, there's shit going down. Like, this is not good stuff. And the fact that Vin is so cavalier about just being in the mists, she's going to get herself killed, man. Like, she's really going to hurt herself. I feel like a mother from the 60s or something. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why i leaned into it that way yeah yeah, yeah. No, definitely like a madman like, era mom there's clearly something nefarious happening with the mists and it's evolving and we've seen a bunch of different reasons for that to be the case throughout this entire section and seeing it through sazed and knowing that he's seen it before i think is going to be really really helpful because we're going to be able to lean on any historical knowledge that he might have going forward. And also he's just good at deducing things. So I think having him have firsthand experience here, even if he doesn't know anything prior is going to be really helpful going forward. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that what's, what's yes. What's really interesting about Sazed is he has all this perspective that we really haven't gotten. We've gotten lessons from Sazed. We've never gotten the knowledge of Sazed, which is what's really cool too, with like accessing his ferrochemical powers and peeling through his mind, the index of the metal mind that he talks about to like access. Yeah. It's so cool. It's so neat. Yeah. Like it's a, it's a whole thing. Yeah. I totally agree. And in all concepts would say is that I think that it is a, a brilliant perspective to add. But then on top of that, we have the sort of curiosity about what else could all the things that says it knows because he's kind of removed from our other immediate characters at the moment. We have the sense of dramatic irony if if says figures something out because he's naturally disconnected and he knows all of these things. So, you know, there's kind of a, an interesting disconnect between the perspectives there. Right. I really appreciate, of course, the reason that we're we're talking about this investigation in the first place into this spontaneous death from the mists is, you know, Sazed ultimately labors here to give Jed, the man who died from the exposure, some decency by actually burying him when everyone else was afraid to even go near him. And I think this speaks volumes to Sazed as a character. Yeah, it does. He is he is really a great person and a wonderful character he's really well written and just he's a good dude it makes me feel guilty for not trusting him implicitly from the beginning (laughs) i don't know man yeah i feel bad about that it's my brain dude i can't trust people i can't trust these characters 
I can't do it. I don't. Oh man. Like even me saying that I should be trusting them and like knowing that I should trust them. It makes me think that that's what's like, that's the manipulation. Make me feel bad about not trusting him. So maybe, Mm. maybe I can turn my mind and then it'll fucking turn on me. Like there's some sort of extra malicious intent there. Yep. (laughs) There's an interesting note here though, of course, to end kind of the the chapter in the discussion as says it is presented, presents a Hada ritual. I think that's probably as close as we'll ever get to saying it properly, but a Hada ritual to the gathered folks of the Eastern dominance and that those folks actually feel really abandoned by the Lord Ruler's departure. And this idea of this other religion is super foreign to them. They they kind of are like, what? And they have a very interesting reaction. It's sad, but the nature of the faith that's been so deeply ingrained inside of their culture for the last thousand years, it's going to take more than just killing God to make them kind of move on. You know? It's so fascinating. Yeah. They're... They're basically unable to even grasp the idea that religions existed before the Lord ruled. It's it's going to make for a really uphill battle, especially in outside of Luthadel and outside of like the city center where they got firsthand experience of like the resistance and the armies that like fought against the Lord ruler. They're completely removed from that, so they don't have that context. So why would they just abandon everything that they've been taught? They don't have a reason to. Especially when that's effectively their form of education. Like that is their education is a religious one. And so what else do they know but the labor of the lords and like the reason that the lords have them labor and that is for the religion. It's this interesting bureaucracy that is their entire life that is driven from this religious base. So like they're they're still afraid of the lords houses that they should be going into to protect themselves from the winter. They're still afraid of all of these different things and they just don't have the capability of overcoming them right now they have the capability they just don't have the capacity that's a good distinction yeah yeah right any other thoughts on uh, chapter four and our first dip with Sazed this week it was a short one huh yeah no that's both that's of the Sazed chapters are pretty short so yeah he's just a succinct dude quick dips in quick dip out which i think is a good it's a meta it's a good meta thing from brandon's perspective because says knows so much if he wants to try to keep anything a secret he can't let us live in that head for too long <laughs> you know like right that's a good point yeah so he's got to just give us windows of time almost so with that we move into chapter five and we have our quote here from the logbook, of course. And I am the one who betrayed him, for I now know that he must never be allowed to complete his quest. Very short and simple and yeah. pretty straightforward. It's Quan serving Alundi some looks, being kind of angry. This you know. seems like it's entirely chronological and the next sentence after the previous logbook entry, which, I mean, maybe not all of them are like this. I don't think all of them are like butted up next to each other but it it makes me have some hope that everything is chronological at least so we can see a progression in story to a certain extent throughout the entire book this log book has a lot less to hide up front very clearly because of this chronological Mm -hmm. nature of it right so it feels like the first thing is like do not trust anything that you read that is not carved into metal. Then he starts to tell the story of like why you should believe and listen to him. And then he starts to tell the story of what's going on and what happened to lead him to this point. So it's kind of, it feels like we are getting a parallel story that is being told chronologically so far, Mm -hmm. so far. So 
I agree with you there. I love how this chapter opens after the logbook with the three pages of Vin exploring the city, showing us the changes on the streets that the Ska have flooded in while some of the noblemen have left, that businesses are turning corners and and becoming flourishing entities, and that money has made a positive impact in Ska's lives and in street urchins' lives of whom are robbing the Ska. You know, there's there's maybe even an increase there potentially because, you know, there's more money floating around. Ska don't necessarily know how to treat money, so there's potentially more pickpockets. It's it's kind of funny. But it's great scene dressing and to me shows real growth in the writing between these novels that we kind of talked about and featured earlier. We we sort of end this cascade of scene setting with Vin staring into a gown shop, touching her earring and recalling her mother, the death of her sister and Reen carrying her out of the house covered in blood. Yeah. So a few different things to address there. You oh, mentioned I? the yeah. fact that the street urchins are a lot more apt to pickpocketing. And I think specifically, you mentioned that it's because more people have money. Like there's just a better chance that you're going to run into somebody that has some money in their pockets to pickpocket. But there's also the fact that they're much less likely to run into very, very serious punishment for getting caught. Because previously, the only people that would have money on them would be the very wealthy and powerful who could bring down the hammer of the law on you if they caught you. So I think Vin mentions that like only the boldest of the street urchins would really try that at all. So there's that. And I mean, yes, also the Scotches don't know necessarily how to hold their money. You'd think they'd be a lot more sort of protective of it, having never had it before. But once you kind of fall out of that honeymoon phase of having coins maybe it falls into a little bit more normality without being too like too absurd with the amount of money that you have on you i don't know tyrannical dictatorship being replaced with kind of a a capitalistic system is interesting right like these people have never had to provide for their own livelihood they've always been either they've been given shitty food but they've still been given food they've been given lodging and now they're being basically given an allowance on top of that it's it's interesting it's it's a shift for sure and as such the street urchins are kind of taking advantage of that shift and there's also the what vin mentioned there's a lot less artistry that goes into like trying to draw people's attention it's more shouting and more just trying to bark at people to get their attention for like what you're selling whereas before you had to really stand out and be artistic and there were dances and and displays going on to to draw the people try to draw the attention of the people that had money in these crowded streets and now it's everybody has money so get the most number of people (laughs) to your stand so that's a really interesting shift as well. So that was kind of cool to to see described. Shifting to Vin herself, she mentions her earring, she's touching it, she's thinking about it, all of that. Have we had enough description before this to know that it was made of bronze? Or is that new information? I'm still like operating under the assumption that this is ferrochemical in, in nature. Sure, sure. Yeah. I think... I think it's new information. I think it's an, okay. an extension of information that we knew. Okay. That it's made out of bronze. Interesting. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is it? Is it interesting? It's just, it's giving me more, like, it's giving more 
solid like clues into thinking that the way I'm thinking about this is who knows, but that's where my brain's going. Bronze is internal. Yes. Yes. Internal pushing metal. So it lines up. Makes sense to me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. The the scene with the folks from the Church of the Survivors hunting, I think, the, these are folks that who have kind of lost their way in their faith, searching for it in Kelsier's heir apparent, Vin. You know, obviously the Church of the Survivors, this thing that sprung up after Kelsier's death as this martyr for the Ska and for society at large. And they're seeking Vin as sort of their, their new priest, and not priest, but new figure in a way, because obviously one of them is a priest seeking blessings and, and things like that. It's it's just like another hand-me-down from Kelsey or another remnant of the legacy that he hadn't really anticipated. And I think for I think it's just kind of sad and unfortunate that that's like just hefted onto Vin. What would you make of it? What do you think? I guess you could see it as sad or unfortunate to be kind of put onto her. But at the same time, this is exactly the situation that Kelsey was aiming for, like becoming a messiah of sorts. And maybe he didn't expect the like the actual congregations or churches to pop up or for Vin to be so so tied to it, but like he couldn't have thought that she was going to be entirely like separate from that, knowing how like how powerful she is and how critical she was to the plan in general. And frankly, I think Vin should be leaning more into this. I know that's kind of a departure from her personality but she could really be using the situation as a figurehead wanted wanted or not she's a figurehead in this church so using that as a platform to motivate people to act in a way that honors Kelsier's memory and what he was actually like trying to do could be incredibly useful to the cause in general like, yes, they have created a kingdom on top of the Lord Ruler's, like, ruins, but they still have to get people on board with it. And having that sort of seed within the Ska community, I think, would go a long way. And and being that connected to it, I think she's kind of squandering that opportunity. Yeah. yeah. And I... You know, like she, she could take that moment, but that's never been her personality, right? No. Like that's never been, it's never been who she is. So I agree. Yeah, it, while it would, it would have been weird for her to do it, but I think that would have been the right move. Yeah, You're right. Yeah, yeah. like it, it wouldn't have made sense for her to do that, but I think that's the way that she should be aiming to go in the future. Yeah, she absolutely could be taking a aggressive isn't the right word, but she could be taking a stance for. You know, she'd be mm-hmm. taking advantage of the situation she's presented with, which she often does as a thief. So, you know, it's it's not that far of a stretch to say she mm-hmm. might do something like that. So we finally arrive at the purpose of Vin's venture out into town, that of finding a wolfhound. The the dog vetter doesn't want to sell her one. Of course, she wants to. He wants to instead give her something cute, you know, like a little I think he says something like a little Barbie or Barbie or something like that. She quickly finds her way to the wolfhound, kills it with a quick blow to the head, takes the leash that was there to walk a dog away and instead ties its legs together so that she can bring it back to Orsur so that he can become the dog. This is a brutal fucking scene for a book regardless 
Brandon, you just killed, you introduced us to a dog, and before petting it, you killed it. She flared pewter first. Well, right. That, and that's just to, like, make sure that it dies. <laughs> you know, like, that's, yeah. I understand, yeah. like, the ruthless efficiency. Like, that makes sense. Yeah. But. Yeah. No, I'm just highlighting that fact a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It is brutal. You're right. And it, it's. Killing a dog we, is not YA. At least she didn't walk <laughs> it home. Yeah, right. And then kill it. Like. At least she had to have the burden of carrying a dead dog around. I feel yeah. like it would have been worse to like it make it walk itself. Locked at home. Yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. You're right. But it was not pleasant um, to have to kill that in front no, of. No, yeah. no. There's there's you're almost right. no way that the scene works out well. I think the choice is really interesting though. Yeah. Like I know and I understand that she'll need or serve to be at least a little bit physically formidable if something were to go down, just in case in a pinch. Yeah. But it seems like the primary goal is for him to be a spy and for people to let their guard down and, like, speak around him candidly. So why not be something a little bit cuter? Like, yeah. Not something so cute that people are fawning over it constantly, but, like, just a normal-looking dog, not a snarling, what's it, what's it called, a wolfhound? Like... It's going to be intimidating and people are going to be on guard just in its presence. It, yeah. it feels like they could have gone a little bit more subtle with the choice in dog. There's a question of, to your point, I think I agree with you. I don't think the rules of the Contra have been so well defined that they could change shape that dramatically. Like imagine if a Contra was a cat or like a bird. Like that is dramatically different than wearing the bones of a person or, like, a bigger dog. I don't know that we've had that defined yet well enough, you know? Can yeah. they shrink? Like, so, to your point, oh, like, a so small dog. Oh, so he's got to be bigger. He's got to be big enough to, like, not. A big enough dog so that he okay. actually fits and can wear the bone. That's okay. just a thought. That's not That's that, not a guaranteed. It's just a, you know. That makes sense. Because she does explicitly go out, go for the biggest one, and then realizes that it's kind of, like, aggressive. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying it's factual. I think. Yes. Right. But I think she also sees that as, as a positive because like having she is the guard of the king. Right. And she sees that as like, I've got me and a big dog and they're going to assume that I have just have a big dog as my pet. Turns out it's a Chondra, <laughs> but yeah. it was also a dog. Dogdra. Dogdra. Yeah. Now it's it's just brutal. Punching the dog in the head will forever live with me as like the one of the craziest things that Brandon Sanderson has done in the books that I've read. Like initially. The first time I read it, the first time I read it, I thought she did it to knock it unconscious so she could bring it back without having to deal with it being obstinate. Like, I didn't, it, it I don't know if I missed it or if it doesn't explicitly say it, I can't recall, but it, it didn't feel to me that she killed it right then and there. It felt to me that she like just knocked it unconscious and then brought it back. Subsequent reads. Yeah, no, she just fucking punched it to death. She just fucking punched in the brain. <laughs> no bueno. Yeah, I I get that. It's I didn't know where it was I didn't know where it was going, so I just I didn't consider the idea that she was just going to kill it in the, in the kennel. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Ah, mm. oh, God. We we jump from the delicious picture of a chondra eating the dog. <laughs> While not wanting to. <laughs> to one of Vin receiving a letter with a potential new metal in it. He does not want to, Orsor does not want to consume this dog. Like, is very against it. He also yeah. states that, he also does say, I forgot this, he does say that they can't kill a man. Like, he can't kill men. Cause it, oh, I missed that entirely. Yeah, there's there's a note that he can't kill someone just to eat them. So, like, he can't just kill to consume oh so he, he can't consume somebody that he killed no he like, can't can, he, kill. can he kill somebody in general i don't think i don't think they can kill pretty sure that's pretty sure that's a rule which chapter are we in five right yeah so i i'm pretty sure it's actually in chapter two that it said it said earlier but here vin says just to clarify i'm not going to kill for you chandra and even if i did kill someone i wouldn't let you eat them plus this will be more inconspicuous so there is a note earlier i know that says specifically he can't kill but it is a question of kill and defense kill you know otherwise Unsegudo. do 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 it's definitely in chapter two definitely in chapter two chapter two 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 okay here's here's what it says the contract states that I cannot be forced to kill men. So he is able. Cannot but, be forced. But he doesn't have to follow an order to kill someone. Correct. Yep. So Chandra cannot be assassins. Right. If you want to think about it that way. Which. It's a decent delineation. Makes sense. They yeah. can be. As long as they decide to to go along with it. But they can't be like compelled to under breach of contract. And Orsor needs to be compelled to do literally anything. So that Orsor is kind of a surly bastard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that's, I mean, that's a fair point. And, you, know, like, you kind of feel like Vin's <laughs> like, fuck you, dude. <laughs> Just do it. like you knew what I was implying. <laughs> you knew like, why are you being such a dick? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Especially because he was so kind of like he was kind of kind as Renew. It's a very it's a very like different timbre with. Uh, okay, with I can Orsor. understand the idea of him not wanting to become a dog if other Chandra can like sense him. He's like, I don't want to get caught like being a dog. It's demeaning. They're gonna make fun of me at the Chandra meetups. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. It's just funny. <laughs> it's, you know it's he he literally does say something to the effect of like i am a man <laughs> what do you mean and yeah, yeah. Mm. oh the wolf or i wonder if there's like always a lingering aspect to anybody that they've like consumed they get the memories we talked about that they get the memories so he's always gonna have the dog memories he's gonna have dog memories <laughs> he's always gonna have the memory of vin punching him to death in the head oh <laughs> That could explain some resentment, maybe. <laughs> oh, <just> no. <laughs> um, no, that's interesting, for sure. Mm-hmm. So, as we were saying, we got interrupted by this idea of Chandra killing men, dog, etc. But w- another part that happens here is Vin receiving a letter with a potential new metal in it. That of Durlumen from Tarion, a master elemantic metalsmith. This is really interesting as it is apparently an alloy of aluminum. How does this have your brain turning regarding alimantic theory? Is how I pronounced it. Duralumin. Durlumen. Yep. Yep. I, I called it duralumin, which is dumb. It should be duralumin. Duralumin also works. If you're pronouncing it aluminum as aluminium, which 
for most of the world is correct. We know Alev. So I'm going to kind of give my perspective on this initially, and then we get we get more context later. So like my initial thoughts are like yeah. what I'm going to say right away. Aluminum isn't known to be alimantic in general, at least like we don't know that yet. And working under that understanding, I was curious if it was something like she was trying to figure out a different delivery system for different metals. Like yeah. she was trying to deliver copper in a specific way as a, as an alloy to aluminum somehow, or maybe it was a way of hiding her metals from like prying eyes, something like that. But it seems to be more of an offensive play trying to like figure out the alloy of the aluminum that she was forced to burn to like deplete all of her iron or all of her metal reserves. That makes more sense, but I'm still curious how she's going to like force people to take and burn it. Like the steel inquisitors were kind of a crazy, ridiculous force. And like, that seemed like the only way to actually force somebody to do something like that. I don't know. But we learn later the aluminum is a elementic metal. Do we? Did we we do. It's it's actually addressed specifically in this section. It is it is specifically what you're talking about. It was a secret of the steel ministry. We we can talk about this a little bit more strictly when we get to the section, but it is specifically a metal that was kept secret by the steel ministry because it could strip an alamancer of their powers their abilities their metals instead of their stomach so right. it is alimantic it just has okay a, yeah a, i guess seemingly counter alimantic effect yeah i guess i guess i wasn't putting that into the same category but you're right yep so it is considered a metal yep an alimantic metal because when burned it has an effect unlike like sickness which is like burning a bad metal this is clearing. It is. It is a I'm known curious. point. Known at variable. this point. I wonder if there are very obscure alloys of basically any metal that might have some weird obscure power. Like if Vin gets a hold of bananas, <laughs> if bananas exist in this world, but they're like way off and nobody has them. And she gets a banana and eats a banana and has like fucking crazy power or something. I don't know. She can control lights. I don't know. I don't know what's up. I think also, that's what's so fun about this. Go ahead. So specifically, I'm bringing up bananas because I had this thought earlier. And I don't know if I brought it up to you or not. I think I might have. I think I texted this to you. Bananas are very, very high in potassium. And potassium is a metal. Can she just very fling bananas metal. all over the place? That's a great question <laughs> on on trace metals and things and how much like how much you need to actually push on something for it to be like pushable. She's um, I mean maybe most people can't but Vin. I mean Vin can detect things that other people can't detect. I bet I bet Vin would be a banana slinger for sure. Or just like banana summoner. There's always like she does potassium with in the banana stand. Copper she does it with scoop with spooks copper spooks. mug. Yeah. She could do that with bananas. Just I'm so pissed you didn't hear my joke. Oh, I didn't. There's always potassium in the banana stand. <laughs> like pulling it. <laughs> like <laughs> There's always metal in the banana stand. Yeah, there's always metal in the banana stand, Finn. I just I thought of it and I was like, that is so funny. <laughs> I just needed to narrate her. It was not that funny, but like also <laughs> I'm just imagining Vin being like a 
Oh, I know. I know why. I was making memes. I was making memes and I did that for one of them. I don't know if that ever got published. I don't think it did. No, I haven't shared it yet. Banana slinging. (laughs) Banana slinger. so ridiculous but elementic theory like like it it leads to interesting questions like you're saying of like how many minor allies are there i think they even i think ellen even mentioned something along the lines of in this chapter of like could there be multiple alloys to one core metal could there be like multiple that are useful also is pure aluminum then something else pure aluminum is the burn is the burn your stomach no that was she needed to find the right alloy for it that's duralumin that is the right alloy oh yeah so we don't know what it actually does yet okay okay correct here we go okay 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 we don't know what duralumin does now i understand i was really confused with like the entire thing because she mentions not getting a headache but she doesn't mention like anything happening because she doesn't know what's going happening okay i was yeah we don't know at this point what it does i thought they were trying to find the alloy that the steel ministry used to burn people's no no no, no. that that I thought, is aluminum. i thought they were trying yep. to okay now i'm aluminum understanding. is the core okay. yeah okay so aluminum okay. is a metal on the table okay duralumin is an alloy potentially on the table but we don't know its ability right and we also know that it was number five out of 40 possible Yep, and she didn't get sick this time. She got sick from the previous four for two days a pop for just burning a metal. So yeah, yeah. Elementic theory is a lot of fun for it's for this exact fun. reason of like it's like oh fuck I've got this entire other curiosity that's almost scientific about this magic system. So getting back to the rest of this chapter because there's so much left to cover here. Doxon returns from the north and we learn of the tensions between him and Ellen that they get along but not perfectly well compared to the rest of the crew they're almost at odds with each other which is a different turn from what we've seen with everyone else because potentially a lot of Doxon's history like we discussed previously in the infamous episode seven that was historically long and all, all the various notes that could happen there we can see that kind of manifesting in their relationships as they discuss each other in the way that they, they kind of butt heads and incorporating ellen into the crew has led to tensions directly with him but it's it's necessary being that Ellen is in charge of everything and Doxton is just such a good executive assistant, as Lindsay said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think you hit the nail on the head, though, like already. Like, why is this? Why are these tensions here? And it's because Doxton has this ska background that was so horribly oppressed on a personal level from people that were in Ellen's position. It's not easy to just drop that. Even if you understand that Ellen isn't like that, it's still maybe not right to hold on to that resentment, but completely understandable. So I think we'll see a progression between them and their relationship and how they interact with with each other going forward. But I think it's just still still high tensions. He was Kelsier's right hand who presumably held a lot of the same opinions on the noble class as Kelsier did, who was pretty intense, you know? So, yeah, it'll take some time, I think. It is going to take some time. And I I think that it's nice to have some, like, intergroup tension because this wasn't really a thing before. It kind of was because Vin didn't know whether to trust anyone. But this is kind of a nice... 
I say this from a meta perspective. It's a nice thing to like see a little bit of friction and not everything go so well. Otherwise, it's just like this is all too easy to some degree. And this makes base sense with Ellen and Doxon's characters. Like they they occupy similar spaces in terms of getting shit done. So yeah, Ellen is almost like a fusion of Doxon and Ham in a way. If you if you want to think about it that way, cool. yeah, entirely. So, moving back to something that we've already talked a little bit about, what did you think of Vin and Ellen's conversation revolving around our sword, the contract, and kind of his general attitude? So, so I make sure we didn't miss anything. We're just adding Ellen's perspective into the equation. And he talks yeah. about Ten Soon specifically as a reference point. Right. This, I think this is the point where we realize that, or where where it's revealed that these contracts aren't ironclad. They can be broken. And ironclad in sort of the the way that I'm thinking about sort of demonic packs or like sure. devilish packs, and it's more about personal consequences for breaking them. I don't I don't know what to make out of make of it other than that. But Vin makes a really good point here. Like knowing that they don't want to break that pact makes it suck way more when they actually do. I don't know. I don't recall exactly what Ellen said about Ten Soon. I'd have to go back and look. I can't recall. Yeah. So the, I think the conversation with Ten Soon is really one of sort of a it's it's just a small note. It's it's that Ellen's experience is really with Ten Soon predominantly as like the house conjurer for the, the venture house. And it's it's not much more than I understand what that contract was and, and they're comparing the two and they're like, Well, this is a house conjurer, you had him for years, blah blah. He was indebted to the house. So he he followed a specific rule set versus Orsur is kind of under this very different rule set, which is an inherited contract from Kelsier, of which he feels indebted more to Kelsier than he does Vin, even though Vin is now the holder of the agreement and contract. So it is an interesting kind of precedent to have and to try to follow. And, and Kelsier bought that contract too, or paid for it. Yeah, we learned that Chandra at the end of the last book are expensive and paid an ATM specifically. Yep. Okay. So what does he do with the ATM? Good question. No answer as of yet. What does he do with the ATM, PJ? I don't know. Does he use that for the shape-shifting? Maybe. Ellen, Vin, and this new empire are all clouded by the legacy of Kelsier, which we've talked about a couple of times, and the imprint that he's left on society. It's so clear throughout this chapter between Ellen's reflections, the people in the street addressing Vin as Lady Air, and all of the rest. The Kelsier is stamped all over this fucking bit part so far. Yeah. Obviously, the title of the thing is Heir of the Survivor. So, like, this is, as I said, it's better, I think, to think of it as Heirs of the Survivor, not Heir, but... right. But, I mean, I don't really see how it would be possible to not have his influence ever. Yeah. yeah like, right. it's, it's exactly what he was going for. And it's how mm-hmm. he built the entire thing. Like, how he built his plan was to become a martyr and basically a messiah. I don't know. I don't know what to say. Like, that's exactly what he was going for. So they have to live with the consequences of that. But it's what worked. It's what rallied everybody around the cause so it was necessary either way yeah yeah i think that is the you're right there's no way that you can't feel his influence everywhere and there's no way that there's any way that they're going to be able to stretch out of that immediately it's only been a year and the impact of his martyrdom is widespread but as far like i also think it would be kind of 
a slap in, in the face to the resistance that built themselves around Kelsier and fought for Kelsier to just drop his influence entirely after the fact. Like they were fighting for him before he died and then more were fighting for him after he died. And to just say like, ah, he died. We're taking, we're taking the spot and like his influence is no more. It just ushered out the reign of the Lord ruler. Like, I think that would suck. You know, I think you need his influence in order to be genuine to the cause. And that's hyperbolic. I know that's a, a hyperbolic way to look at it, but you know what I mean? I totally get it. I, I totally get it. I think that the, the, hmm, I don't feel like you're reaching that far. You're reaching, but you're not reaching that far. I understand. I'm intentionally being a little bit over the top, but yeah, I don't think right, it's right. that bad, that much yeah. of a reach. Mm, cool. Moving on from that. I just want to quote something that's within this section as well, which I think is a good quote. I, I think that we didn't actually spend enough time in the first book quoting Brandon Sanderson that much versus the amount of time that we did with Pierce Brown and whatnot. Some of that's because I think Brandon Sanderson is he's trying to be very plain like he is. It's plain and it's good. He, like he is very communicative directly with a lot of his information. He still has highlights and lowlights and language and things like that. But I want to highlight this one because I I love it. It's very close to a quote that I have on my fucking wall, so it feels like it's very relevant. But good men don't need to become legends. They do what's right anyway, which is astonishingly similar to Marcus Aurelius's uh, mm-hmm. stop debating what a good man should be and be one. Yeah, so I, I was going to mention this if you hadn't. Yeah. The very, very stoic vibes off of this book in general. Mm-hmm. And this comes earlier, like even the first logbook entry of the, I write these words in steel for anything not set in metal cannot be trusted. St- even, even that gives that sort of vibe, not necessarily to the same like explicit extent, but it feels stoic in nature. Sure. Ironclad in its own way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Be, I mean, it, it sort of evokes the idea of outwardly being exactly who you are. Right. And be permanent. Yeah. And I, I oh, the, especially that first phrase, you're right. That yeah. That is very much like your your impact is permanent and, and kind of solidifying yourself in something is important. That's mm-hmm. a good read on that. I, I think that this book, ultimately, I, I think that you've read in kind of predicted well as as far as what we've seen it, it kind of being like a political intrigue there's definitely a lot of that inside of this so far in addition to some like questions and some kind of lingering things in the background but i i think that that sentiment matches well and i think that in a, then again like brandon sanderson feels like he has maybe enough underneath him to be a little bit more confident with some of these things to be a little bit more <laughs> brazen with statements like this about character and moments and, and things like this and i think that that's Ultimately, I think it's a good thing, and I think that that comes out more in this novel than it does in Mistborn. I think um, you're right. Entirely. Yeah. You mentioned us not quoting Brandon Sanderson as much as we quoted Pierce Brown during like the Red Rising series. I don't know if we quoted Pierce Brown so much as far as like really standout quotes in the first book. True. Similarly. Yeah. Similarly. Yeah. There were a couple, but not there that were many. a couple. Sure. Yeah. yeah, in the same way that there were a couple in the previous book, like we did call out a handful, but it feels like similarly they're growing as authors. They have similar starting points, similar trajectories. It, it just it's mm-hmm. all it lines up pretty cleanly and concisely between the right. two of them for sure. So, yeah, 
makes sense. So I just want to make sure like that people understand. I like Brandon Sanderson's writing. It's just that all of it is so consistent and persistent. It's great. And those moments where he just pops up above that, that sort of plain plain is in a non-negative way. Like he pops up above that, like explanation boundary that he lives in a lot of the time. It's fantastic. And he's already done that a couple of times and in, inside of the first 80 pages of this book so and he did a lot at the end of the first book so we did quote a couple of those descriptions and whatnot so we've already talked about this a little bit but we get a backstory on aluminum right we talked about this kind of like element of aluminum this is where we get it is at the end of the chapter saying that this was a well-kept secret by the ministry that completely removed the reserves of an alamancer when burned. Vin burns the new alloy, and thankfully for her sake, nothing happens as far as a headache goes, but also she doesn't know what's happening when she burns it. Right. So Throws up questions. Now understanding that yeah. that alloy is different than pure aluminum, Like I don't know what I was thinking. Brain was crossed a little bit. I wish I had more time to like go back and think about I don't know, speculate on what it could be. I don't know what it could mean. How maybe it's maybe it's a focus. Could it be used as sort of a magnification of other metals? Like if she were to try to burn pewter while also burning alum or uh duralumin, would that intensify the effects of the pewter? That could like I could see that as being an inverse of completely the inverse of getting rid of is strengthen yeah yeah i don't know okay because i I don't think you can generate it that doesn't seem consistent with the world yeah generating metals inside of you would be odd unless it could be used as sort of a catch-all yeah so if you have some if you're already burning pewter if you could just kind of extend that burn to the aluminum storage as kind of a reserve of whatever. It feels like that ability would be res- reserved for something much more rare and precious though. Like aluminum's mm. a very common metal. And it yeah. feels like that would be discovered early on and would be like well used by Mistborn. I would agree. That would be interesting, but it would also be something that the Lord Ruler might have kept under wraps intentionally, which is kind of what happened with aluminum. So maybe there's a reason for that. Yeah. Cool. Other other thoughts on uh, chapter five? No, I think that's pretty much everything. Cool. With that, we move into chapter six. Uh, we start off with the logbook, of course, here. Page 60, which is Alendi posts the well and kind of the sort of thoughts that he might be violent. I'll read that here. I write this record now, pounding it into a new metal slab, because I am afraid. Afraid for myself, yes, I admit to being human. If Lundy does return from the Well of Ascension, I am certain that my death will be one of his first objectives. He is not an evil man, but he is a ruthless one. That is, I think, a product of what he has been through. So This is an interesting read. It is. The thing that stuck out to me was... The terminology used of pounding this into the metal slab. That's the first time this is mentioned here in this book. Mm-hmm. Like it's mentioned that he's writing it in metal. But that specific terminology, I feel like, was used in Mistborn from Alendi's perspective, talking about what's it fucking what's his name? Rashek? No, other guy. Quan. Quan. 
I feel like he mentions Quan striking things into metal slabs and writing in metal during this scene from his perspective in the logbooks in Mistborn. And I might be going crazy, but I feel like that's the case because I think we've talked about this. Do you remember that? Yes. I don't think it's as closely related as you think it is. Okay. I'll give you that. Yeah. That's fair. It just evokes that memory. Of- yeah. Yeah. It feels like a parallel. So I understand. That makes sense to me. So this is this is right before he goes into the... Or he's already gone into the well, correct? Yep. Has well, not come out yet. He's a, we don't know that yet. This is actually... Elendi is away from this process or rather excuse me Quan is away from this process he's not with alendi during while all this is going on he's not with him oh he's not traveling with him so he's waiting for for the return from the quest not yes. like sitting at the outer like at the outskirts of the correct web. correct he's not he's not okay. actually he's not going on the journey with him because he betrayed him beforehand and that's i thought yeah. like my entire understanding was that he betrayed him during the journey no, 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 no. Okay. Well, he, he may have betrayed him. Okay. He betrayed because Alendi him. Because knew about the betrayal right away. Yes. And yeah, I felt he like he was already on the While road. the journey was going. But Quan was not a part of the party. It was information that was given to them while they were journeying. Okay. Does that make sense? It does. Now I've got to think more. Yeah. Now, I mean, now I've got to like reapproach a lot of stuff going forward because that i was under the it's, impression that he was like a party member the entire time no 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 he's not a party member he was just the first the first person to catch on and promote Lendy as the dude the guy you know mm-hmm. the dude the guy i love this sparring match that we get in chapter six uh between ham and vin especially from the third party perspective of ellen it's a nice little view into the world thinking through his lens and the stresses of being king and kind of seeing yeah. this fight yeah. So what I really liked about this perspective and this sparring match was the fact that mm-hmm. this allowed, or at least maybe, maybe not allowed, but this gave Brandon Sanderson the opportunity to showcase his ability to talk about fight scenes in not a very dry, like choreography kind of way and sort of let, let it be a little bit more flowery, which is exactly what you would expect from Ellen. And from any sort of nobleman to like be able to describe the flourishes of the moves as opposed to just the matter of fact, like actions mm-hmm. being taken. So I thought that was pretty cool. And maybe that's just the perspective, just a, a function of the perspective that we're in, or if it's growth of Brandon Sanderson as a writer and being able to, to combine those ways of writing. But I appreciated it either way. I I think it's really interesting because it does it it imparts perspective as opposed to the dry perspective, like you're saying. It imparts what Ellen understands of Alamancy as opposed to the strict laws and rules of Alamancy. And again, it's just pewter. We're not seeing a whole lot more than just pewter, but it's still it's still interesting because we're given kind of the outside in perspective from someone who's not even a misting who doesn't understand how metals work in burn in theory, mm-hmm. like only understands in theory, I guess. Yeah. It is a fun little, it's a fun little, you know, it's just, it's good. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. And like you said, the flowery language also matches Ellen's characteristic, like that matches his sort of approach to the world. So Mm -hmm. I get that. And then 
you know, club shows up. The general of Ellen's military forces in the middle of this fight, basically while they're conversing and downstairs, the the duel is kind of going on or around them, the duel is going on. He basically reports that the army isn't doing well, considering the seeming impending doom of the invading force knocking at the door. He's much more buddy buddy with Ellen than Darkson was previously, which is nice to see. But uh, yeah, we get clubs. Clubs is back. So, I mean, yeah, he he mentioned something along the lines of needing more than a year to train an army entirely. Right. Basically says he doesn't even consider consider them an army at this point because they haven't been trained mm-hmm. properly. Needs more time, which is a pretty reasonable thing to say yeah. in a situation and in their, like, in the army's situation. But... He is getting pretty buddy-buddy, but at the same time, he's still the gruff old man that we, like, came to know in the first book. Which is something that uh, Spook points out as well. It's like, he's still, like, just my old uncle <laughs> clubs. And he, and he like, calls him, like, a grud. I don't think he's old. He just is kind of a curmudgeon. Yeah, right, right. He's just, he's older. And I think on top of that, you add in, like, the way that they describe his face is kind of, like, warped a little bit and, like, aged, which is an uncommon thing for Scott, because we know that they die earlier rather than later. You can kind of see where that where that comes in as a, a descriptor versus a lot of other Scott. You know, like, Menace was old at, like, 45, almost 50, right? So. Yeah, yeah that's true. Clubs is similarly aged, but an artisan, which is interesting. So... After placing some bets on Vinnerham and who's going to win the fight, which I think is a lot of fun, Spook also appears with a crazy beard <laughs> for a brief conversation. And while he's mostly shed his Eastern dialect, he does obviously open up with kind of that signature lingo. He brings back bad news from the West, of course. It does appear that the rumors of the A-team supply are what is attracting everyone to Luthadel and the central dominance in general. Breeze is miss- missing within all of this as well, and not a word of his actions making their way back. They're kind of, it almost sounds like they're afraid that he's dead. Right. First and foremost, love the fact that they're taking bets on this. Like, that mm-hmm. is exactly what I would expect from the crew. Yeah. Is to, like, right. friendly bet. Fuck yeah. Bringing Ellen into it, too, is such, like, a heartwarming, like, little, you yeah. know, it's like, ah, you're a part of it. And spook is a welcome sight even if he does have a really shitty beard i don't know it it ushers in a very very fun scene Mm -hmm. while still kind of giving the weight of the breeze sort of speculation yeah but we don't linger on that which i'm okay with right now (laughs) yeah yeah don't want to focus on that too much it is it's just an interesting note inside of the whole thing i i really like we mentioned this just a moment ago but Vin, or sorry, not Vin. Spook also calls clubs Uncle Grumbles, which is just like a great little. It's a great little bit, you know. Like mm-hmm. it's just yeah, enough it of an insult, but just heartwarming enough. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's nice, and we get we get a sense of why you'd like everyone's drawn here, and why Set is Ashweather Set that we talked about earlier. Why potentially uh, why Straff is here to begin with to like come back and claim that there might be other people contending for the the throne. So. Mm-hmm. Vin dispatches Helm. Uh, oh my God! Vin dispatches Ham in a well-executed flourish, jumping over the man and knocking him over in a tizzy. Nothing crazy, but Ham does request some water afterwards. And the whole ensuing scene is funny and reminiscent of the cruise in the old days. There's just so many different moments of like pulling and pushing and doing fucking shit around the room, pulling the cup like you'd mentioned earlier over to give uh, Spook a drink and and some like fun back and forth between 
like Vin and Spook being cool with each other, which is good post their sort of uh, near miss relationship, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But and it seems like Ellen isn't aware of that. Right? No, it's <laughs> he's not, not aware all. of it at all. Yeah, but we are. We get the dramatic but, irony. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he's like kind of cluing into it, but not really. I don't know. Mm-hmm. We're in his perspective, and he makes mention of it mm. internally, but kind of in passing. I really appreciated that the fact the fact that we got a little bit more tangible understanding of Pewter and how. We're not not necessarily understanding. We we had all the information we needed to have for this, but the walking us through the application of the fact that these metals have the like the the power is stored in the metal, not the person. So it doesn't matter the size of the person using the metals; they're still going to give the same amount of power. So the fact that Vin is such a small person. She has that ability to like jump super high with pewter to the point where most people assume that she's using iron or steel or whatever. Which one? Which one's which? I fuck. She's pulling, so that's iron steel pushing. Or or pushing. I, I think they assumed she was iron pushing pulling, off the ground. To jump. Oh yes. Yeah, that's that is the assumption, but at the same time it's instead communicated that that is actually pewter because she's only right. launching a couple because of she's, feet and there's no and, metal. And because she's small it yeah. affects her so much more than it would affect Ham. And and this is something that we talked about with Lindsay, right? Is like the benefit of being like a small pewter user, right? Is like this extra step, this extra like mm-hmm. little bit of, of yeah. yeah, it's good. Super cool. It's it's definitely something. I, I, I appreciate that small bit of perspective where we get like her being so good and proficient at using pewter and and kind of winning this fight and then in post being like still exhausted still like beaten down from the fight and like you know tired um not exhausted exhausted it's a little bit much but you know she's like she's slinging gatorade around and like drinks and shit like that like pouring you know basically you can imagine like a post game basically kind of mood going on you know we're not we're not taking a, a gatorade tub and like dunking it on someone but you know Picking up the mm-hmm. copper and then being like, fuck this and pouring it in the spook's cup. And I don't know. I just imagine that kind of like fun, friendly attitude, which is what we get from the crew here, you know, right. in general. Yeah. Yeah. We cut from that warm and fuzzy feeling with the crew to an orser covered in fur and looking an awful lot like a fucking wolfhound. Um, they take off to end the chapter with a run through the city. I love he's got like this small rebut here that I just want to bring up. I think it's on page 68. Do, 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 do. One second here. Give me give me time. So it's just like this. It's this moment of where he's like repeating himself. Right. So like Vin says, is that why making this body took you so much longer than you said? He says, no, mistress or sir said the hair. I'm sorry. I didn't warn you. Placing fur like this takes a great deal of precision and effort. Actually, you did mention it. <laughs> and it's like, well, it's just so fucking much that I couldn't think about it further than that. Like, yeah, I thought it was fucking hilarious. Yeah. How this scene went. And I, I also really appreciated the fact that Branderson took the time to explain the mechanics of the chondra enough to know that like they have a little bit of sort of improvisation that they can do when like imitating somebody's body it's not a Mm one-to-one thing they can like maybe fuck with the vocal cords a little bit so he can talk like Mm -hmm. it it doesn't give the like hardcore outline of exactly how it works 
but it does let us know that there there is an internal logic to all this and how it works and i i mean you know me i appreciate shit like that yeah yeah there is there is a logic to the system which makes sense with that we move into our final chapter of the week chapter seven it's a short one so we are almost done here but we kick it off with a little logbook entry of course like we do it's great though i i appreciate the logbook entries in the second book personally it's very different than the logbooks in the first so i am also afraid however that all i have known that my story will be forgotten i'm afraid for the world that is to come afraid my plans will fail afraid of a doom even worse than that of the deepness Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. So I read those as entirely connected comments, not as like separate sentences, thing, separate things that he's afraid of. I felt like yeah. that was one, one Thought. singular comment about like what he's afraid of. And that's like, sure. I don't know the, the loss of knowledge and his way of life. So I don't know. Seeing that as worse than the deepness itself, I think makes sense, especially from Sazed's perspective of like his entire like being his entire life has been dedicated to basically going against the grain and doing everything that he can to make sure these things aren't lost forever. So and they come from the same ilk. I don't know. I want more. I want more. Of Good Quan. news. You'll get more. That's kind of the, that's kind of the name of the game in the story. So you're going to get more. We're reading this book fairly fast, to be honest. Like we are, this is the longest book in the trilogy and we are reading it as fast as we will read the last book. The same number of episodes, which is crazy. So there could be another episode in here, but I decided to just keep it fast because I think that's, I think it's better for the pacing of the show, but yeah. Yeah. So get through a lot really quickly. We've got a couple of like, like this week, we've got a couple of like 75 to 80 page weeks. So but cover a lot of ground. I think we've done well. We hop back over to Sazed to we hop back over to Sazed to him fulfilling what he believed would be the place of the terrorist after the collapse, that of being a teacher. While he does have some students that appreciate him, he feels like he's much more of a bother than anything else. He's kind of invasive into their lives. And it's it's an interesting too that Sazed feels drawn away from his goal as an instructor and towards that of this other investigation his curiosity seems almost insatiable despite everything that he knows which is such an interesting place for a character to be caught in because it, it leaves this sort of yearning for something more despite a clearly fulfilling profession right there in front of them yeah like so many people you know the way I read it was that like being an instructor and being a teacher is a a duty and be a necessity because like he has a desire to learn more mm-hmm. and a desire to like be curious and just explore in general. But being a teacher is what allows that exploration and that learning to not be in vain. He, his entire being is preserving, like he's a keeper. And as a keeper, he is like keeping all of this information. And the goal would be to spread it and make sure that this information doesn't die with him. So like, that's his duty as a person. That doesn't Mm -hmm. mean it has to be his, like his dream job, Mm -hmm. you know? It can be right. both. He can he can want to explore and want to learn, but 
have a compulsion and and a, like he needs to teach it or it it doesn't matter yeah yeah and i think that fits like it's it's an interesting it's a dichotomy of character right because like you want to absorb more knowledge so that you can share but at the same time like he's he's now in the mode that he should be sharing and instead yeah, he he's like i he still want, want more take knowledge the time yeah, yeah he doesn't right. he doesn't want to take the time to share it yeah which is so it's so like it's so interesting and shitty but also totally in line with someone who's only taken in knowledge their whole life right he's just he's searching to take in still that's the nature of the keepers like they're preserving and, and taking in they're not the ones meant well they likely are and they probably should be but he's never been trained in the like validation of disseminating information that's not been his goal it's been retaining gaining forever so right yeah as he's going about these contemplations, of course, one of the Ska runs up to Sazed, claiming that the Lord Ruler has returned. When Sazed goes to inspect, he finds that it isn't, of course, the Lord Ruler, but a black-robed steel inquisitor. Marsh comes with the news. The conventicle of Saren is empty, and that means they must go inspect it. There are documents there. It's a library. There's all kinds of things that are there that Sazed absolutely wants to see because they've been hidden from the terrorist people for generations. Marsh also bears other grave news that the Lord Ruler was merely a cog, merely a delay, and with him gone, there is little time remaining to whatever is going to happen. They pack up and head out for the conventicle to end this week's reading. Mm-hmm. The Lord Ruler warned them, you know? <laughs> he was pretty upfront about it. Yeah. But... What's interesting to me about this, and like we'll we'll get into the specifics of the content, but what's interesting to me is that Marsh was mistaken for the Lord Ruler. Yeah. And maybe that's just out of ignorance for like what the Lord Ruler was or what the Steel Inquisitors in general look like, but they didn't look similar. So like where are those stories coming from? And like has Sazed not spread that information yet to anybody of like what happened recently and what they looked like and what they were? Like, I don't understand how that's that was the yeah. that was a mistaken identity. So I think this raises an interesting question about the the book, The Final Empire. Right? I think this is a good kind of topic of conversation. There's a point here where this leads me to believe that the Inquisitors weren't just the of the lord ruler's will so much they were also literally appearing to be him in these moments in these public moments and not so much that they were just enforcers of the will but they were because of their presence and everything else i believe that a lot of the scars so maleducated that they didn't understand that this wasn't the lord ruler and so he could be 20 places at once in theory with his inquisitors because no one saw him. He was also within the cart. Like he was never physically seen or present. Some people probably do know, but it's, it's an interesting, you know, stepping stone. I don't think it's foolproof. I don't think that idea idea is uh complete, but, but clearly it worked well enough. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly it was, you know, enough of a guise that it succeeded. Yeah. So Marsh mentioning that the conventicle is empty. Was he saying that there was nobody in there guarding it or that it didn't have any documents in it anymore? I believe he was saying that there was no one else there so that it was it was strange because there was no one else 
in the conventicle of Saren, not gotcha. because there was nothing inside. Well, that's going to be a treasure trove for Sazed. I hope it is. Yeah. I want more info. I want a lore dump episode. You're hoping so badly, especially after some of our Taylor shit. It's just like, give me, give yeah. me the meat. Give me the meat. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I feel yeah. that. I feel that. Mm. So with that, the final little tidbit of the week that we get to feast on before we go into next week is the logbook. Again, page 87. It all comes back to poor Alendi. I feel bad for him for everything he's forced to endure for what he's been forced to become. This is interesting. It's a very nuanced portrayal from Quan. Yeah, poor guy. <laughs> poor guy. I, poor guy. I kind of hope we get some sort of glimpse from Quan's perspective of what happens to Alendi. That's going to be maybe a little bit more difficult to get a straight answer understanding that he's not actually on the quest with him sure but rumor spreads so who knows yeah yeah i i agree with you we're we're in an interesting spot right now and that's i don't know we'll we'll see how it pays off we will el capitan all right with that we would generally move into pj's predictions we don't have any to pay off this week we don't have any to talk about so we would generally move into questions of the week but this is the first week for a new book so we have a new question to give to you guys out there i think we'd posed the question of what's your favorite sparring or practice fight in a former media and i definitely know my answer here it's from a video game it's from a very popular video game that i've been unable to finish because i'm colorblind and that's enough of a hint for most people most friends i guess to interpret or interpolate what i'm uh suggesting but there are several games that you've been like unable to play no there's only one there's only one that's given me enough trouble that i've been unable to complete it okay okay frustratingly so yeah I can't remember what it is because I, I I know you've complained about games in the past, but it's never like stopped you from playing it entirely. Right. There's only one game that I've ever stopped. Yeah. <laughs> because of my colorblindness. But okay. Anyway, gotcha. that's that's a hint. But think about that. Think about your favorite sparring moment, your favorite moment between characters, dueling, sparring, practicing. There's another one from another book that I'll talk about eventually, too. But yeah, those are a couple. Sounds good. So. Cool. We'll talk about that next week. Send those in. PJ, do you have anything else for this week? I'm just happy you guys are along for the ride with me because this is a fun, fun journey. Yes, it is. All right. With that next week, our reading is going to be from chapters eight through 12. So in the paperback, that's pages 78 through 136. I believe this is actually the end of part one, if I remember correctly. I think I did it. I think maybe no never mind it's not poor so it's gonna be it's right there anyway so page chapters 8 through 12 so 78 through 136 so with that that's where we'll leave you for the week thank you as always to tim and andrew our producers for helping us keep our shows lights on also check out all the links in the show notes you can find our schedule patreon previous episodes our websites all of our social medias all in one convenient location with that thank you jesse for giving us our first private party of which we're going to be tackling a piece of media you're handing us a short story by kurt vonnegut called harrison bergeron which is a story from welcome to the monkey house by kurt vonnegut highly recommend and i'm very excited to talk about this with pj and to tackle this, this should be out in March, 
March. So we'll we'll let you know as soon as that episode comes out. But thank you for being our first private party patron and for sponsoring an episode. This is super cool and very unique. We appreciate you for uh, for coming on and doing that and supporting the show. Did we have we already read this part in previous episodes? I just if you are inclined to look us up or reach out to us, you can do so on Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit at Words Whiskey Pod. You can email us at wordsandwhiskeyshow at gmail.com, and you could find our Patreon at patreon.com slash wordsandwhiskey. Beyond that, thank you so much for your support. It really means the world to us, and we will see you next week. Have a good one. 